From Rivers Barden Architects, this is Spork in the Road, a podcast featuring conversations with creative individuals about their path, craft, and passions. In this episode, our resident architects Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden visit with Eric Calderon, a business owner, entrepreneur, artist, and maker from Houston, Texas. For a long time, I associated uh, being an artist with being able to draw. You know, so like if I, you know, if you put a cat in front of me and said, draw the cat, and it looked like a monkey, uh, <laughs> you were lucky that it looked like a monkey. <laughs> like I just, I was never really, you know. Yeah, see, there it is, not dark. Yeah, yeah zero. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what my, how, how my life went. Like that's kind of how, in my mind, I, I felt like art went. Eric Calderon is the owner of Lenova Tile, a company he started over a decade ago after graduating from UT Austin with a degree in international business. But it wasn't until more recently that he started experimenting with artistic sculpture and color gradations. Joe and Kevin visit with Eric about the start of his tile company, the forging of his artistic identity, and how his art feeds back into the business. Here's Joe, followed by Eric. How did you decide to start your own tile company in 22? When I graduated, I just moved back to Houston because I didn't really have anything to do in Austin anymore. And I moved to Houston with no job. You know, when I was growing up, people would ask me what I wanted to be. And I'd say, I just want to be a businessman like my dad. My dad's a businessman. You know, he's, he's an entrepreneur. He started a whole bunch of businesses. He, you know, that's kind of his calling. And I have always been fascinated with starting businesses. Uh, so we, you know, my dad was building a house. And... You know, he had to buy a whole container, and he didn't need a whole container of tile for his house, so he bought a whole container, and he brought over the other half. And as a hobby, decided that he was going to start selling tile. So he knew, his, he had friends that were home builders, and so he was like, hey, man, you want to buy some tile? And uh, three years, maybe five years later, he had a warehouse full of tile, and he was, as still as a hobby, running a full-fledged like, tile distribution. From one day to the next, he stopped selling tile. And... Um, I guess five years later, I graduated from school, and he had a whole bunch of tiles sitting in the warehouse, and I said, Dad, I don't have a job, so I'm going to start coming to work with you, seeing what we can figure out. And so uh, I went to work, and I said, why don't I get rid of this tile for you? And we agreed that I'd get rid of the tile. So anyway, so I, I, I was doing closeouts, and I closed out a little bit of his tile, and um, I said, here you go, here's, 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 the, here's the money from the closeouts. And he's like, well, why don't you start a business with me? And you can start a business, whatever you want to do. We'll do it. So I thought about it and I said, I want to start a tile business. And my dad was like, anything but tile. Like, <laughs> like, absolutely not. Like, we just went through this. We just got rid of all this tile. We're not doing tile. So uh, I fought with him for months and I, you know, I kind of, sh- you know, I, I tried to explain to him, like, hey, this doesn't exist. And look at these price points and look what these people are selling this for. Because it was, I mean, importing even just in, in, in the early 2000s, it just, it wasn't as global. I mean, it's, it was way more globalized in the early '90s, but it still wasn't nearly as globalized as it is, as it is today. So, still, there was still like a mystique to imported tile, and I was seeing now how much people were paying for tile and selling tile for it, and I was just blown away because they they were making huge markups because they could, because not that many people were bringing stuff in. So, uh, finally, talked them into it, and so we did it, and wow. it was a huge failure. Um, the first couple of years were really, really tough, and. Uh, it wasn't until a couple of random home builders came in, and you know, this is during the townhome boom, you know, Rice Military and Montrose and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, builders came in, and they're like, "Well, I'm tired of tri routine," and that's when the business kind of started. Hmm. 
even gaining any ground. So the first year we lost a ton of money. The second year we lost a ton of money. My dad had to loan money for the business to stay in business. I think at one point he mortgaged his house because we were so deep into it. And um, and I still had no idea what I was talking about. I mean, oh, backtrack. When I started this business, I had no idea what I was doing. Zero. I just thought that this product would, I mean, I literally thought, you know, this is why I, when I try to like, when I lecture entrepreneurs, like if I get invited to speak somewhere, I'm like, don't let your entrepreneurship spirit die. But when you're young, I don't, I don't really care how intrepid you are. When you're young, you feel like you're going to dominate the world. You're going to take over the world. And that's fair. You, you don't want to ever like kill someone's like passion. But I thought that I was going to open this store. We opened a store on Shepherd and Westheimer on the corner of Shepherd and Westheimer. And I literally thought that I was going to sit at my desk, unlock the door, and people were just going to start coming in. You know, because I was 22 and I was totally ignorant. And and I was like, and I have good products, so why wouldn't people come? Well, how are they going to hear about it? You know, I don't know. That didn't really cross my mind. So it was really tough. And a couple of home builders started kind of appreciating the product. And then porcelain kind of went through this revolution where... Um, and this has happened like at five different stages of my business where I bring in a product, people look at me like I'm crazy. And then one of my major competitors brings in a product and they say, oh, this is like what Eric was bringing before. And so it validates the fact that we were pioneering it. They still get to make the sale, which is fine because we still, you know, we, we always get to work with some pioneering companies. Also, like in the architecture side, there's some people that are willing to take some chances and use some newer materials. And so then the product becomes accepted and we get to kind of relish in the fact that we were kind of the first people in the market with it. And then we're on to the next thing. So, um, so yeah, so that's how Lenovo started. Um, and uh, we're going into our 14th year of business wow, uh, this year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a roller coaster. It's, it's never, it's never a dull day. I think when we were first talking, it was uh, came super became super intrigued with uh, you had mentioned um, that you had a uh, you were showing some artwork at Market Bar. Sure. Well, uh, the Market Bar thing was kind of was kind of exciting in that that was the first kind of third party random kind of act of, of someone reaching out and asking for me to supply something. So that was a that was a pretty cool experience. Uh, what was really special for me, though, was the fact that I sold a really large piece. And up until the point that I sold that large piece, I'd sold a couple of smaller pieces, uh, mainly to people in the in the industry, in the mm-hmm. A and D industry. It seemed that it seemed to appeal to, I guess, the the three dimensionality or the rigidity or the colorfulness or whatever. Uh, but other than the small pieces that I had sold before, it was the first time I had sold anything other than tile, hmm. really, in my life, or, hmm. or made up, you know, made a, a decent sale. And so it felt. Special to know, and it was to a complete stranger, so it just felt wow. special to know that somebody that I had never met or seen before saw a piece of art uh, and uh, felt strongly enough about it to contact me. Can you describe the piece for us? Yeah, it's really simple. It's a, uh, <coughs> what was I want to say 18 inches by 80 inches, and it was five gradients uh, going from red to yellow. So the one on the left, I want to say, was the red one, and it was a gradient of bright red in the middle, and it would gradate to white. So the border of the piece was white, and so each one of these blocks would gradate to white. So you had a red, and then a little bit more orange, orange, orange. So you got the yellow, and that last piece just kind of uh, 
exploded in Hawaii. Uh, and um, it, was, it was simple. It was, you know, one of the most simple pieces that I've ever done. But, you know, the reality is that there's still 40 individually mixed colors in each one, and they mm. still get hand-applied and stuff to kind of think mixing the squares and trying to balance the, the weights. So gradients aren't necessarily the easiest things in the world to put together. No. But, um, it's it not, it's not like Photoshop. You don't just, like, click two buttons and... Right. Blend. <laughs> like Photoshop. Um, so in the, in the case of this piece that we're talking about, the gradient was very structured. It was just from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes to make the gradient seem more smooth or seem more transitional, you dither. You know what dithering is? Basically, I don't know what dithering is. So dithering is you basically don't put each consecutive stage of saturation next to each other, but you uh-huh. kind of mix them a little bit back and forth so that uh-huh. uh, you get a little bit of the dark on the left side, a little bit of the light on the right side, and therefore it's it's a little bit more of a smooth transition. So, hmm. um, and like, what, what, so what is the material that, that you're using? It's polycarbonate. Uh-huh. I use 3D printers a lot, uh, a lot more a couple years ago, and I, I was 3D printing something and the print failed, and I ended up with blocks of various different heights, and so I was peeling them off the bed and I kind of squished them together and I thought they looked neat together, it was just mm-hmm. a very simple three-dimensional. And so I thought it'd be neat to make some blocks of various heights, they're just one inch by one inch blocks. So I, I made a couple thousand of them, it took 200 something hours to 3D print them, it was a, it was a pretty <laughs> process, uh, and started figuring out colors and mixing colors and painting them individually and creating these works with these pieces. What kind of paint? Uh, acrylic. Okay. So basically the 3D printed blocks would be arranged in a random pattern so you know you have six different heights and the only rule is that the same height can't be next to each other so you can't have two pieces of the same height next to each other. Uh, each piece is individually glued together after it's painted to create these pieces. So uh, on the very first piece that I made it had 31 different colors. So I started with red, yellow, and blue, uh, and then blended those colors together to kind of create a gradient. And so from the red, yellow, and blue, uh, plus the 28 additional colors, I ended up with 31 colors. Uh, Painted the same number of blocks each color, and then assembled those into a gradient, but not a sequential gradient where it goes from one color to the next, but kind of dithered that gradient Mm -hmm. to where they kind of blended into each other. Uh, and that was actually the first piece that I made that I, that I was super proud of and, uh, wow. and where I decided that I really wanted to do it. But the problem is that 3D printing them really took forever. And uh, while the 3D printed quality is nice, um, it kind of adds a little bit of dimension to it. In my opinion, this type of work, I think, needs perfection. Like It, it, it kind of calls to be more rigid and more refined and streamlined. So uh, I pursued making a mold, uh, an injection mold of these six blocks mm. and uh, for basically I made a SketchUp model of each block and I sent it to a factory that that does injection molding and they sent me a quote to make a mold and it was really expensive to make this mold uh, but then I thought about the process of 3D printing and how much plastic costs when you just buy it on a spool mm-hmm. and long term and ultimately um, made the mold and then manufactured 60,000 little blocks because Whoa. that was the least amount of blocks that the manufacturer would be willing to make. <laughs> the least amount. Uh, yeah. And, um, so you have like a room of like I just stockpiles? to paint for 10 years. Wow. Because it takes forever to paint these blocks, right? Wow. So literally I could probably paint for 10 years and not, not deplete those blocks. It seems like a lot of money. It's an insane amount of money considering that there was nothing backing the decision to buy it. Like there was no <laughs> business background. I mean, there was no business need or, you know, it was literally just 
I would really like to have. Yeah, this dollars. would be nice. <laughs> one inch by one inch blocks. Uh, and then the blocks themselves were really cheap. They're about five cents a piece. Okay. And so making 60,000 blocks was actually less expensive than making the mold that, that they came Wow. So now I have a stockpile of blocks. It's kind of helping me more confident, me be more confident with the price of the piece. Like mm -hmm. at this point, I can make a piece every two months, if, if that, right? right? So I don't want it to feel like work. I guess this is how artwork is priced. I don't really know because I, you know, I have no art background in me. But uh, it gets to a point where I say, okay, if it's going to take me two months to make this, I'm going to put this price on it. And if you don't want to pay that price, that's perfectly fine with me. Mm -hmm. I don't care because I don't want to feel like I'm working to make that piece again for two months right. for any less than that amount. It's hard to put a value to anything anyways, right? right? I also had zero creativity or gave myself zero credit for creativity up until the time I met my wife. Like something happened, mm -hmm. I guess, when I met my wife. Or, <laughs> uh, I mean, literally, I, I for a long time I associated uh, being an artist with being able to draw. Mm -hmm. You know, so like if I... You know, if you put a cat in front of me and said, draw the cat, and it looked like a monkey, uh, <laughs> you were lucky that it looked like a monkey. Like, <laughs> like, I just, I was never really, you know. Yeah, see, there it is, not hard. Yeah, yeah zero. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what my, how, how my life went. Like, that's kind of how, right. in my mind, I, I felt like art went. And um, sometime around the time I met my wife, I started, I don't know, it was like this explosion of color in my life to where I huh. felt uh, super drawn by color. And, I, you know, she makes a weird face at me when I tell her that she is kind of the person that inspired me overall for everything because she's like, right. I don't really understand how that is, but it, it, it's not like she did anything. It's just her. It's like her and my relationship with her. But ever since that point, I, I still, I don't think I'm creative like an artist is, but I do mm -hmm. have creativity in putting together colors and I do enjoy putting together colors and I think I've got a knack for gradating colors, if that's mm -hmm. even a word, grading. Was that when you're, you're so your first... Artwork that you were talking about with the red, uh, blue, and no. was that around the same time that you made? No, so this is for, this is, or many years. Before? Yeah, yeah. So uh -huh. I made the first piece of artwork last year. Oh, whoa! Uh, that I've actually sold. So uh, when I met my wife, I started actually messing with projection mapping. I don't okay. Know if you're with projection mapping, it's basically the idea that you uh, project a, a video or an image through a projector and it lines up with a three-dimensional physical object. So you'll often see uh, a building, for example, that looks like it's collapsing, but it's not really collapsing. It's just a projector with like making it look like it's crumbling. Right. And, I, and I started looking at the projection mapping. I really enjoyed projection mapping just out of fascination of, mm -hmm. for projection mapping. But I realized that you also needed to be like a 3D graphics person and people go to school. For that. I mean, right. basically an animator to do the things that I kind of set out to do. Uh, but during the process of learning how to do projection mapping, uh, I came up with a very simple, very, very simple concept of just projecting colors onto three-dimensional shapes and then animating the colors into sequences, just colors, like not, you know, no animation other than changing the color at a different rate or a different pace. And I was able to make these big arrays because the projector is only limited by how big the projection is. Um, how did how did this evolve back into these uh, poly tiles? Oh, that's a really good question. So, I expressed all my frustration with setting up projectors and, and mechanics, and and I realized that all I was doing was projecting color onto an object. <laughs> and so one day I was like, well, why don't I just paint the damn color onto the damn object? 
And that's literally what happened. And I was like, I mean, yeah, it's not as dynamic. But what I found is I have photographs of installations that I did, and those photographs are stills. And right. I loved, I just loved the gradients that were created by those photographs. And 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 then I, I got to that point of conversation, saying, well, maybe the art isn't the setup and this animated thing that sits on the wall that you have to worry about people looking into the projector, projector and getting blinded, or the AC coming on and like shaking the projector, and you know th those like things that kind of made me insane about this type of work but instead it was just setting up an installation and then capturing a still moment in it which i have a couple pictures all, all the instagram posts that i ever posted about it were stills you know and when i got a good reaction to that people didn't even see that it moved they might not even have known that it moved and but they liked it right so during that time um is when i accidentally misprinted these blocks mm. and then so i arranged them and they look cool and then i was like what if i paint them and so i went to the star supply and i bought a really basic paint set and i painted all the blocks and I glued them together and I was like, wow, oh, that's kind of like that's kind of what it, it is. You Wait know? a second. <laughs> and it takes way more time, but it's it's permanent. And so that transition was just this desire for permanence. It's kind of a, a complex simplification of the idea. I mean you, you had this idea and, and you this creation and then the more you came to understand it, the more it was like it, what you were going for wasn't necessarily the projection. It was a, this playing with colors, and there's other ways, and there's simpler ways. And mm -hmm. I mean, and I mean, you even talked about with like the gradients and the dithering. And it takes a lot to make something look very simple and crisp and clean. Mm -hmm. right. I think it's it's really interesting. I think like like the artwork that you have that you're pursuing right now. Like hearing you talk about you know the the way you approach business or you approach your tile company, it, the, having that outlet for artwork is, like, allows for a much deeper understanding with just how, um, how colors, you know, going out, how textures, how things, and it's like, you're, you come to the table, like, way more informed than you, like, if you didn't have that outlet, you know, you wouldn't have, you know, this thing of, like, you would just be selling tile, and that's fine, but, Connecting with people, the stories that you tell, the, and all this kind of thing, like it only bolsters, in my mind, you know, how you um, it's, it's connect about, with people. It's all about validation. Right. I mean, every step yeah. of my life seems to be just validation. And I think all of our lives is just constantly being validated from when you're a toddler to now. It's like, you know, you do something and you there's a reaction and it either validates what you did and it makes you want to do it some more. Or it gives you confidence in what you did, or it invalidates it, and you don't do it anymore. Yeah. And um, I really hope that you know these art projects or these tile projects that we design um, <coughs> validate the fact that we are not just right. like slinging tile. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of competition in this industry, and my competitors are huge. They're monster mm -hmm. companies. Right. We nibble away at market share from monster companies, not just because we have a good product, but my competitors are not designing tile collections, and they're yeah. not designing, they're not spending 40 hours a week on art projects. Right. And if one of my competitors did design a tile collection, they would be hiring someone to design that collection. Uh, it's really easy to be envious of um, what other I mean, just in general, what other companies have, like how many more salespeople they have, how many, how much more sales that they make. But 
no matter how, like, when I get kind of down about it, sometimes you get kind of down about it, you just realize, like, how I've never seen the leadership in that company do anything other than purchase material and sell it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's many businesses in all levels do that. And in some types of businesses, there's just no room for creativity. But damn it, like in the tile business, we are, my clients are the most creative people in the city. So why should we not also be creatives? Like why should we not be contributing to this? From Rivers Barton Architects, this has been Spork in the Road. For more information on Eric's company, visit LenovaTile.com. And to view some of his artwork, go to LightArtInteractive.com. A special thanks goes out to Eric Calderon, interviewers extraordinaire Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden, and to everyone following along at home. This episode was written, edited, produced, narrated, and music by Scott Barden. For more information on Rivers Barden Architects, visit riversbarden.com.